0: Hello, I'm Dr. Anna sulan Mussing, and I'm host of the podcast, Taste of Place, part of the Whetstone Radio Collective. This podcast investigates our relationship with nostalgia, the past, and our place in the world through taste. And we're starting with Pepper. I speak with scientists, academics, chefs, farmers, a perfumer, and many more to bring the tangible and theoretical together. So, tune in and subscribe to Taste
1: of Place on your favorite podcast app now. My name is Shiloh Maples. I'm Turtle Clan. I'm Anishinaabe. I'm a citizen of the Little River Band of Ottawa. I also belong to the Ojibwe people of Swan Creek and Black River. I am speaking to you from my homelands here in the Great Lakes. Welcome to Spirit Plate. In this space, we will talk about Indigenous foodways as means of resistance, resilience, and revitalization. Within this growing Indigenous food movement, there is an incredible story of reclamation and intertribal solidarity powerful yet untold examples of Native peoples resisting and thriving. The stories of our foodways are one of the greatest testaments of Indigenous brilliance and our beauty of spirit. But before we can talk about Indigenous peoples' food traditions, and contemporary efforts to revitalize their food systems, we have to understand the history of disruption that makes this work necessary. In the last episode, we talked to Dr. Martin Reinhardt about the era of termination. A time between the 1950s to the late 1960s when the US government moved to dissolve tribal governments and deny indigenous sovereignty. We also spoke about how this attempt to suppress indigenous sovereignty led to a new era of intertribal activism. Ever-growing red power movements advocated for tribal self-determination and demanded the restoration of treaty rights. Some activism, such as the occupation of Alcatraz Island, And Wounded Knee gained significant publicity and led to greater awareness of Native issues. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Hoover. Dr. Hoover is an Associate Professor of Environmental Science, Policy, and Management at the University of California, Berkeley. Together, we'll talk about the Native American Graves and Repatriation Act, one of the many pieces of legislation from the self-determination era and how it has provided a path to seed rematriation. I've invited Dr. Hoover to share some of her own experiences in this movement, which is all about returning seeds to the communities of origin. So before we, we start the interview piece, could you please introduce yourself in any way that you would like?
0: Sure. My name is Elizabeth Hoover. I'm originally from upstate New York, my family's of Mohawk and Mi'kmaq descent, but now I am out here in California on Ohlone territory, and I work as an associate professor of the Environmental Science Policy Management Department at UC Berkeley. And I'm also a board member of the Native American Food Sovereignty Alliance and the North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems, and I work with the Slow Food Turtle Island Association. So I think that's how I wound up here, (laughs) speaking with Shiloh today.
1: Well, hi, Liz. Thanks for joining me. To start us off, can you share a little about your work and your areas of research? Yeah. So I
0: started my research career um, thinking about environmental health and communities activism around reshaping how science has done in communities that have been impacted by environmental contamination, specifically the Akwesosne Mohawk community. And as part of that project, I started thinking about the impacts on the food system of contamination and efforts within the community to um, start revitalizing the food system and encouraging more people to grow their own food and save seeds. And I grew up on a little farm, so I did a lot of farming and gardening growing up, but we didn't do much by the way of seed saving. So it was really interesting Being part of this community organization that was focused on how do we track down some of these seed varieties and teach people the specific art of seed saving? Because you can be an expert gardener, but if you're used to buying your seeds every year, the techniques of saving seeds is very different. So that led me on this big project wondering how are other communities doing this kind of community-based farming and gardening work? Um, So I'm working on a book project right now called From Garden Warriors to Good Seeds, indigenizing the local food movement that is bringing together all the conversations that I was having with people in these 40 different gardens around the country. So that's sort of what has brought me here. And then, you know, I, along the way, I had sort of a circuitous educational route because I didn't really know what I wanted to do with myself. And so I started out with a master's in museum studies. And then was like, oh, what am I doing here? I'm going to go focus on environmental issues because it feels more urgent. But I've sort of then looped back around to this museum studies world through this interest in seeds. So I was asked to be part of an advisory committee for the Field Museum, which is in the process of revamping the North American Hall. So that hall was set up initially like 50 years ago and then nobody touched it and it was showing its age. And so they put together a committee of people to come. And think about ways of, of redoing that hall. And I agreed to it because Sean Sherman had visited the museum a little bit prior to that. And he was like, you know, they have seeds in there and there's corn. And I was like, oh, interesting. And after having visited with Scott Shoemaker at the Science Museum in Minnesota and hearing about how they you know, turned to the collections and saw that there were seeds in there that had been collected through the 30s and 40s by this guy, Wesley Hiller, who was a anthropologist slash dentist, because guys could have all the jobs back then. But he would go around just collecting things from, (laughs) you know, these vanishing peoples, as people considered it at the time, um, and put them in these collections. And then they decided to see if some of those seeds would still sprout. And they grew them out in the gardens next to the museum and then connected with the Upper Midwest Seed Keepers Network, was that the group was known at the time. And some of those seeds wound up in the Dream of Wild Health garden and up at White Earth and in other spaces. So they went from being museum objects to being decommissioned, you know, kind of sort of taken out of the collections and then planted and and given new life. And so remembering that story, I was like, oh, I want to go visit the seeds that are in the collections at the Field Museum. And the first reaction I got was like, Look, lady, this is not a seed bank. Like, this is not how museums work. Like, things go into museums. They don't come back out of museums. Like, this is why NAGPRA had to be passed as a law, right? Like, once people got their hands on things in museums, the policies for releasing things are, are pretty challenging. And just sort of the general mentality is that this is a one-way process. Things go in. But then it was like, well, let's just see what's in here. Let's just have a little peek anyway. And in the anthropological collections, you know, there was a lot of seeds that were from Tama, Iowa. And I was like, oh, that's the Meskwaki community down there. And it turned out these seeds were collected by William Jones, who was the first native guy to get a PhD in anthropology. He was from Oklahoma, from the Sac and Fox community. And so the Field Museum had sent him to Meskwaki, like, quick, go gather up their things. You know, these super traditional people, they're not going to be around for long was the, again, the mentality at the time. And so while he was there, he collected all of these handmade lovely things, but also seeds and wrote these little notes in the Meskwaki language on these little slips of paper and stuck them in there. And then they went on the shelves and sat there for 100 years. So then, you know, William Jones is sent to the Philippines on his next adventure to go collect things from the Elongot headhunters and got into a disagreement with someone there and they stabbed him to death. And that was the end of the first Native anthropologist. Complicated story. And so the stuff has just sat there on these shelves and it was like, all right, let's bring some Meskwaki people up to visit with these seeds that have been hanging out there. And so we brought up some folks from the Meskwaki Food Sovereignty Initiative, and people like Luke and Danetta and Jean pulled the little notes out from these envelopes, you know, these bags that nobody touched in a hundred years. And we're reading them and saying, oh, you know, the name of this bean is how it's like afraid to be away from the house. And it tells you something about how it wants to be grown. And so it was a real reconnection of that relationship between community and those seeds. So then the museum starts to become interested like, oh, so she's not just trying to like clear the shelves, but like, how do we rebuild this relationship that should have been there between the people from whom the things were collected and this institution? And this will make for a good exhibit. Like, and then it's like, oh, okay, cool. Like, yes. So now part of the, the new hall exhibit is about the Meskwaki Food Sovereignty Initiative and thinking about this relationship between the museum and the community and highlighting the ongoing resiliency and vibrancy of this community, which is sort of the opposite of the message behind when things were collected at the time. It's like, oh, these people are disappearing. It's like, no, not only have these people not disappeared, but they're thriving and everything's beautiful.
1: Eventually, this activism led to a shift in US policy toward native tribes, reaffirming indigenous peoples' right to self-governance. Over the next several decades, several pieces of legislation were passed which, among many things, reaffirmed indigenous peoples' right to establish and manage their own schools, practice traditional spirituality and ceremonies without prosecution, and safeguarded the welfare of native children. Although issues of tribal sovereignty remain at the forefront of our minds, and many fights to maintain our rights continue today, the hard-won victories of this generation have led to some lands being returned and have restored many water, fishing, and subsistence rights. Later, this era became known as the Self-Determination Era.
0: So... The way that the process, by which as I mentioned, museums are like this one-way door, right? It's very hard to get things back out. So the NAGPRA, Native American Grace Protection Repatriation Act, works for human remains, burial objects, sacred objects, and objects of cultural patrimony. But you have to go through a whole board. It's a whole process. It's a very long process. So at the Museum of Science, they had... Deaccessioned, which again is another long process. You have to give justification for why is the museum trying to get rid of this thing? So what we ended up doing at the Field Museum, which is an even shorter process, is a destructive analysis form, which basically if somebody wants to come in and do research on something that's in the collections that will entail destroying part of it. So for example, if you wanted to study masks and you want to know what are the paints made out of that goes on these masks. You would have to take a paint chip from the mask and you'd have to destroy it. You know, you take it to the lab and you'd mix it with all these solutions and figure out what's in it. And so the destructive analysis form is a way of saying, like, I'm going to destroy part of this object, but it's for the purposes of research. I'm going to give you all this interesting information. So we filled out the destructive analysis form to say, all right, a portion of each of these seeds is going to go back to the community and get buried in the ground. <laughs> Hence the destruction. But we're going to see you know, are any of these going to grow and to what extent are people in the community interested in bringing these back to gardens? So a portion of the seeds, you know, some of the field museum staff drove them down and and I flew in and went and hung out with Shelly and was there to kind of like welcome those seeds. And it was very cool because members of the field museum staff were now in the tribal museum and the director was like, hey, usually you, you we're up there banging on your door, like asking for our stuff back and look, now you're our guests here bringing these things back. And, you know, there was a meal and a feast and it was great. And then some of the staff came back for the powwow in the summer and, you know, visited and, and watched people doing the bean dance after dropping off all of these beans and everything. But it was a good example of, you know, how do you work to, to build those relationships that should have been there? And so then you know that that's still ongoing and um, they're working on the exhibit. They haven't got the seeds to sprout yet. They're 100 years old and they weren't kept in pristine conditions with the idea in mind that these would be re-sprouted. So, you know, at a seed bank, you've got things either frozen or, you know, it's very low humidity and there's very precise conditions that seeds are kept in. And in a museum, it was sort of like, oh, these are just, you know, they're not alive. They're just a token of what farming looked like at one point. You know, that little seed inside there starts to gradually get weaker and weaker. Right now, Eli Suzakovich is a curator at the Field Museum, and he's working on, you know exploring a few techniques that might give those seeds the boost that they might need. You know they might need a little help at this point being kind of elderly. And then I started this new job out here at UC Berkeley. And there is a museum here. I was like, why? Hello. I ended up agreeing to be the faculty advisor, chair of the faculty advisory board, something. I don't know. Because I was like, I want to get in there and see the seeds. You see, I've always got these ulterior motives, right? You know, there are seeds at the Hearst Museum. There was a guy, George Carter, who was a geographer who ran around collecting all of these different seeds because he was interested in kind of tracing how farming moved around the Southwest and, and what the seeds look like. And as part of the repatriation process, so here, because UC Berkeley had such a terrible reputation when it came to NAGPRA, people just got real proprietary about like, no, you can't take our things, <laughs> you know, you can't take our skeletons that are just all, you know, sitting here, warehoused away instead of being where their communities intended them. So the UC system has sort of taken NAGPRA responsibilities out of the individual universities and there's a broader NAGPRA board. But the the guy whose job it is to connect with communities over these things said, We're going to try through NAGPRA sending home one of these beans. And so there's a community in Oklahoma that decided to to declare the beans cultural patrimony. So something that should have been owned by the whole community and not just alienated by one person. And the beans went home. So now there's a lot of other seeds in the collections. And I paid a student over the summer to kind of go through and pull all those out and kind of make a big list. And we're in the process of figuring out what's the best way to connect with those communities to see, are you interested in some of these? Because the current director, Lauren, her attitude is like, if people want stuff back, like, why are we going to fight with them about it? Like, we should have things here that people want us to steward here. We shouldn't be clutching onto things that people really want to go home. So we will see what comes of it.
1: This concept of food sovereignty might be a new term for some folks, hopefully not for those that are listening at this point, but could you define or put into context that term for us? Oh my
0: goodness. It's, it's hard because I wrote a whole like, article and book chapter, and so I've overthought this term. You know, the La Via Campesina standard definition is sort of the, the rights of people uh, to define their own food systems and to have access to culturally relevant food academics and activists get really excited about terms sometimes and it's like okay what does this mean to people on the ground who are doing this work on the daily and so i went and i asked people at all these different farming projects i was visiting and you know people really focused on you know in thinking about what did food sovereignty mean to them focused on health you know recognizing that these interrupted food systems have led to really terrible health outcomes for many native people so You know, food sovereignty was about restoring health to the community through being able to grow these foods and distribute these foods and give access to people. But it was also about education because people have to want to eat these foods and understand that these foods that are being grown by these projects are healthier than some of the preservative-laden foods that they might be picking up at convenience stores. So about educating people to want to take part in these projects and to eat these foods. And thinking about levels of independence and choice on an individual level. So food sovereignty is about what are you choosing to put into your mouth on the daily? Recognizing that people's choices can be limited by economic factors, by access, but still thinking about on an individual level, what kind of choices are you making? And then on a community level, you know, how is the the broader community able to connect with each other and watch out for each other and make sure that people are getting access to enough food? And then on a tribal level, so how is the tribal government passing policy that is supporting farmers or people who need access to land or ensuring that treaty rights are being upheld and fought for and maintained? So it's about health. It's about you know, economics. It's about sustainability of ensuring that the methods of food production that people are employing are going to sustain the land, but also sustainability in the sense of, again, how do we get young people excited? Because if it's all of a particular age demographic and those folks age out, that's not sustainable either.
1: Yeah. So while this terminology might be a bit newer in the scope of things, do you think this concept is new? Oh no, (laughs) you
0: know, I mean, definitely the terminology and it's something where people are like, oh, this, this term, you know, the people are always throwing these, these terms around. But the idea of being able to feed yourself and ensuring that there's adequate food and ensuring that the methods you're using to procure your food are sustainable and they're not going to harm the other non human communities around you is basically how people lived here for eons, which is you know, why the food system was much more sustainable prior to colonization.
1: Certainly, when I look back at like the history of the, especially the last 500 years on this continent, you know, I really think about a lot about how food and this work has always been a part of our resistance and liberation strategy. Like it's always been something indigenous people have been engaging in. We're putting a different label on it now. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And I mean, it's sort of a global label. Again, the term really came out of an international land-based peasant organization, as they describe themselves. And so these terms were developed at these gatherings where people from around the world were doing this land-based work, were coming together. And then... You know, you have folks like Don Morrison out of British Columbia who have said, well, indigenous food sovereignty is sort of taking that to another level. It's not just, you know, do you have control of your own food and agriculture systems, but are you respecting the relationships that need to be built and developed between people and all these other communities out there that you're relying on for your food? You know, to what extent is everybody in the community able to participate in developing those relationships?
1: Hmm. Shifting back a little bit, specifically to seed rematriation, when it comes to reuniting seeds with their communities of origin, the term rematriation is used instead of repatriation. Can you talk a little bit about why that is?
0: Repatriation is a term that many more people are familiar with, but I really see it as this one-way process. It's sending home things that should not have been taken. So people talk about repatriating prisoners of war. Or repatriating things from museums and other institutions back to the communities they were stolen from. But rematriation, so it acknowledges the role of women seed keepers. You know, all the grandmas who at the end of each season decided like, we're going to keep these kernels of corn for seed because we like the color, the flavor, the way it grew. And these other ones go in the soup pot. So, you know, all of the seeds that we're planting today came about as a result of those grandmas deciding at the end of each season what stays and what goes in the soup pot. So it's acknowledging the role of the, the women in this movement. And if you look at, you know, the Indigenous Seed Keepers Network and other notable organizations, it's really women-led, you know, the work that you and Rowan and other, you know, Tara Lynn Brandt and other powerhouses of the seed-saving world, it's really been a lot of work. And recognizing reckon, you know, there's important men who've, you know, Clayton's really been working hard as well but really making sure that women are acknowledged as part of that. And then also thinking about it less as this one-way arrow of sending things back, but this circle. And so it's reconnecting Indigenous people to these seeds that were taken out of their context and away from their community, reconnecting those seeds back to the land that they were developed for, the motherland. And then in the process, also connecting Indigenous people back to this land. So it's this ongoing Circle as opposed to just this one way arrow, I think.
1: Mm -hmm. And you've started to touch on this in many ways already, but why is seed rematriation so important? Like, what are some of the dangers or threats of our seed relatives being held by institutions?
0: I think it's important because people really want to be reconnected with these relatives. The longer they sit in these institutions, which are not signed as seed banks, then the, the lower the viability becomes. And so it's important to remember that seeds are little living beings. You now, they might look like little inanimate pebbles, but there's a living thing inside each one of those seeds. Clayton describes it as a baby in a lunchbox, right? And that lunch starts to become diminished. You know, the longer that baby is hibernating in there, more of its resources are getting gradually dried out and used up, and they're comes to be a point when the seed is dead, when it's used up all of its resources. And so I think it's important for people to be able to connect with these seeds while there's still any chance of viability. Also because people are really interested in putting the culture back in agriculture. And part of that is going back to these seeds, which were developed specifically for the land that they came from by the communities who were living in harmony with that land. And so as part of reconnecting with culture and agriculture and food, people want to bring these seeds home to be part of that.
1: Certainly. As a grower and a seed keeper myself, I've been involved with University of Michigan and Seed Saver Exchange seed rematriation efforts. Who are some of the other institutions or groups who are involved in this work right now? I think that's some
0: of the, the main players right there. I know University of Michigan, the Botanical Gardens, they've been working for years to carefully approach this project with Anishinaabe people, with MACPRA and Seabooing and, and other community members who've been involved. Hudson Valley Farm Hub and Seed Shed and Growers from Akwazesne started a garden there on land that would have been farmed by Mohawk people. As a way of having a space where seed can be grown out in greater quantity and then sent back to the community. You know, we're working here at Berkeley. The Field Museum has been working. I mentioned the Museum of Science in, in Minneapolis. St. Paul was one of the, the first big institutions to kick this off. But I think there have been other, you know, quieter moments. Deb Echohawk has spoken about how some of the seeds that she got back were through different historical society repatriations. Part of what we're looking to do, and Eli and I are going to be writing about this and trying to get this out there into kind of the academic world. It's a way of normalizing, like, hey, everybody's doing it. <laughs> you know, like if people approach you about your seeds, it shouldn't seem like a weird thing because all these institutions, you know, it's the hip thing to do now is send some seeds home.
1: <laughs> yeah, and a I'm kind of related note to that, you know. Whether related to seed rematriation, land back, or other areas, what are opportunities that you see for large institutions like universities and museums to support Indigenous food sovereignty? There
0: was a report recently maybe last summer that came out about land grab institutions. So getting all of these different land grant institutions to recognize the land that they were granted and still continue to profit off of is Indigenous homeland. The land your institution is built on, the land that people continue to profit off of is Indigenous land and the importance of recognizing whose land that is and how should that institution be working to support those communities. How can communities, especially landless communities, be involved in the stewarding of land? So we're working right now on a eco-farm pre-conference event spearheaded by the Amamutsun Land Trust and Pie Ranch to bring together farmers to get people thinking about, you know, whose land is your farm on and what can you be doing to connect with those tribal communities to give them access to that land and the ability to steward that land. So the Amamutsan Tribal Band is not fairly recognized and does not have their own land base and so have been working, you know, they developed a land trust and have been collaborating with landowners to have their stewards be able to go out and manage that land and harvest food off that land. So universities should absolutely be supporting that kind of work as well. And just training students better to understand how to work with Indigenous communities and the dynamics of conducting the kinds of research that Indigenous communities are interested in, in a respectful and non-extractive way.
1: Yeah, certainly. So you and Devin uh, Maesua co-edited a book called Indigenous Food Sovereignty in the United States. You mentioned this a little bit earlier. And inside, there are so many beautiful and diverse voices within the food sovereignty movement from chefs, farmers, seed keepers, community activists. And this anthology is really a deep dive into the meaning and importance of food sovereignty for Native peoples. This is a great read. I would highly recommend it to everyone, especially for anyone who really wants to learn more about the dynamic work that Indigenous people are doing. And I think getting a better sense of the scope of the movement that's taking place all around them. And you started hinting on this already, but I was wondering, what are you working on right now? We want to know what's coming next. (laughs)
0: What's coming next? Oh my gosh, I have to finish this book. And my editor at University of Minnesota has been so patient, but it's been so hard to cram all the things that I want to cram into this book. So the first chapter is about food sovereignty, people's definitions of food sovereignty. And then there's a chapter about seed sovereignty and seed rematriation and all the amazing things that people have to say around that. There's a chapter on native chefs which turned out to be three times too long. And so I'm really just having this grueling time now trimming it because each chapter should be about 14,000 words and they're all like twice as long, but this one was like 60,000 words. And it was just because everybody has all these amazing things to say and the people who are a part of this movement who are doing all this amazing work are just so intelligent and eloquent and have all these amazing things to say. And so it's really hard to comb that down and cut that down. There's a chapter on chefs. There's a chapter on people who are out there in pipeline camps and anti-mining camps. So thinking about how anti-extractive activism is coming together with food sovereignty activism, because you can't have food sovereignty if the ground is polluted, if the water is polluted. And then another chapter that's way too long, where I went out and you know asked all these farmers and gardeners, what kind of advice would you have for other people starting projects like this? What are some of the successes and challenges that you've had? And again, everybody has all these brilliant things to say. And so that chapter's twice as long as it should be. And then just trying to like wrap it up, thinking about what did COVID expose about the fragility of the food system and really kind of drove home what everybody has been saying for years and years about how we need to relocalize food systems. And, you know, thinking about all the different amazing groups that are out there supporting people in this work and how that can continue to go on. And then I'm going to be working with Sean Sherman on a cookbook. So we've started kind of interviewing some people about that and thinking about, you know, expanding the type of book that he created about the Great Lakes area, Plains area, including different regions all over Turtle Island. So that's going to be a lot of fun.
1: Awesome! I look forward to reading both of those. So last question before we wrap up. And this one is more about your personal journey like through all this work and in your time doing this work how has your relationship to food changed you know have you been reconnected to any of your ancestral foods or practices yeah
0: i mean as i mentioned i grew up on a little farm and we planted all kinds of vegetables and you know raised chickens and turkeys but it was seed that we got at you know, the ag store from catalogs every year. And it wasn't until living in Akwazesne and working with Konehiyo-Yungoya-Dohage, the community group there, you know, thinking differently about what it means to to save your seed and have that seed with you for the next year and to have, you know, exactly the kind of varieties that work really well for your landscape. And so that's really been exciting. And it's really made me think differently about gardening. And so now, you know, my coming out here to a very different place and recognizing that maybe all of those seeds that I had saved from the East Coast, some may do well here and some may not. So then thinking about, you know, what are the seeds that do well here in this new place and sort of now filling my pockets with seeds that I'm encountering in other spaces and thinking about, you know, how to work with this different growing season here. So my cupboard is still full of foods and seeds from all of my travels. And actually Crystal Wapapa's restaurant is about to open and we're so excited for this native food restaurant here in Oakland. And she came by cause she wanted the decor to include, you know, to look like someone's cupboard. So she went through my cupboard and borrowed all of these jars of seeds and corns and beans that I hadn't gotten around to eating yet. And so now those will be out there kind of educating people on the shelves. So yeah, so just now expanding that to include what's gonna do well here. So it'll be an adventure.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you, Liz, for generously sharing your time and knowledge with us. I really appreciate what you shared today. Thanks for having me. The Spirit Plate Podcast is an honoring of all the indigenous communities across Turtle Island who are working to preserve and revitalize their ancestral foodways. In this space, we will talk about indigenous foodways as means of resistance, resilience, and revitalization. Thank you for listening to The Self-Determination Era, episode nine of Spirit Plate. We hope you enjoyed it. A big thank you to Elizabeth Hoover, Associate Professor of Environmental Science, Policy, and Management at the University of California, Berkeley. You can learn more about Dr. Hoover's work and hear other voices from the indigenous food movement by checking out the book of essays she co-edited called Indigenous Food Sovereignty in the United States, Restoring Cultural Knowledge, Protecting Environments, and Regaining Health from the University of Oklahoma Press. You can find it at your local bookstores or online. You can subscribe to Spirit Play anywhere you get your podcasts. Throughout season one, we've discussed some of the social, political, and historical reasons why the indigenous food sovereignty movement is necessary. A critical understanding of the journey that led us here needs to become a more common understanding before American society can give life to a new, more equitable food system. And a more equitable food system requires narrative equity. Indigenous people must get to define their own relationship to land and food and tell the stories of their work themselves. Through interviews with seed keepers, chefs, farmers, and community members, this podcast will share what food justice and sovereignty looks like for indigenous peoples across Turtle Island. As your host, I'm inviting you to the table and into a deeper conversation. I hope that you'll be inspired to think about your own connection to place and how this has influenced your relationship to food. I also hope you'll feel inspired to build genuine relationships with the original caretakers of the place you reside, and consider how you can stand in solidarity with their communities. If you would like to learn which Indigenous communities' homeland you reside upon, visit native-land.ca. That is, n-a-t-i-v-e-l-a-n-d.ca. Spirit Plate is part of the Whetstone Radio Collective. Thank you to the Spirit Plate team, producer and music composer Kat Yang, audio editors Kat Salinas and Bethany Sands, researcher Giselle Kennedy-Lord, and intern Indigo Clarkson. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone Radio Collective executive producer Celine Glassier, sound engineer and music designer Max Ketelchuk, associate producer Quentin LeBeau, production assistant Amalissa Utinko, and sound intern Simon Lavender. You can learn more about this podcast at whetstoneradio.com at Instagram and Twitter at Whetstone radio and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Whetstone Radio Collective, for more podcast video content. You can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone at whetstonemedia.com. Until next time, Bama P.